When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Before we start, this episode deals with domestic violence and includes graphic imagery that may not be suitable for all. Listener discretion is advised. Annabel Hennessy, a journalist at the West Australian newspaper, was reporting on the case of an Aboriginal woman, a survivor of domestic violence. This woman had been due to appear in court as a witness in her own case, but she'd missed a court hearing because she was sick. In Australia, you miss a court hearing and you're a witness, they can put an arrest warrant out for you. And so they put an arrest warrant out for this woman who's this victim of domestic violence. She ended up getting put into a lockup overnight. She was pregnant at the time. She's never been in jail in her life, so it was a very traumatising ordeal for her. Annabelle was shocked that the judicial system would treat this woman, who was the victim in this case, almost as if she were a criminal. Could it be that this woman's status as an Aboriginal woman, had some bearing on her treatment. Was this a one-off, or could it be happening elsewhere? And I ended up speaking to this human rights lawyer, Hannah McGlade. Hannah McGlade herself is part of an Aboriginal community. The story of the woman, jailed overnight for not showing up to her own domestic violence hearing, didn't surprise her. The legal system's treatment of domestic violence victims as perpetrators in their own cases was something Hannah had encountered often in her legal work. And she mentioned this case of a woman named Jodie Gore to me. Here is Hannah talking to Nunga Danjo TV. I was asking questions on behalf of a media contact, actually, about if I knew any women who were in prison because of violence against them. And while I know that most women prisoners have a history of violence, I wasn't so sure about how many women are actually in jail because of they've been, like, fought back. And my young niece, uh, Kia, I asked her if she knew any women from the Kimberley, and she said straight away her auntie Jodie was actually serving a murder sentence, and yet she'd been um, a victim of severe violence and abuse. And I was really shocked when I heard her say that. On that call to Annabelle, Hannah told her about the case of Jodie Gore. What Annabelle didn't know yet is that the story behind Jodie's case would lead her into a complex investigation one that would create ripples of reform in Australia's legal system. I'm Maeve McLennigan. This is The Tip-Off. In 
In 2016, Jodie Gore had been convicted of murdering her ex-partner and had been given a life sentence. She had already been in jail for years, but her lawyers were hoping to bring an appeal. Hannah, the lawyer that Annabelle had spoken to, had laid out some of the details, explaining what Jodie had been through. When the police had come to arrest her, her face was beaten and bruised. It turned out Jodie had suffered years of domestic violence at the hands of the man she eventually killed. And Hannah believed it had been self-defence. And I, I think it was that description of the beatings. Hannah was speaking about them in a really vivid way and it sort of triggered something in my mind where I was like, hang on, I've not heard of this case. What is this case? What can you tell me about it? Annabel had ended the call with the lawyer shaken. This story seemed extraordinary. Surely someone had already reported it. There was only one or two news items. It was the kind of stories that would have appeared at the back of the paper, not being given a full page or anything, but as a brief. And it just sort of said that this woman had been jailed, convicted of murder. But it did mention that she had argued that she was not guilty due to self-offence, but the jury had rejected that. Annabelle was intrigued. Her instincts told her there was something here and she wanted to find out more. She knew she needed to talk to people close to Jodie to hear more about how this woman had come to be convicted of killing her former partner. Hannah, the lawyer, was able to put her in touch with Jodie's cousin. So Annabelle picked up the phone. She was nervous. Jodie had been in prison for four years, and now suddenly the family would be getting a call from a journalist. She was worried that they'd be spooked and not want to talk. Jodie's cousin answered and put the call on speakerphone so Jodie's mother could listen in too but it was a tricky conversation to navigate. I was asking them about domestic violence and obviously it's not an easy thing to speak about. The family members explained that Jodie had been with her partner, Damien, for years, but their relationship had been volatile. After a stretch in prison, Damien's mental health had seemed to suffer, they said. He would beat Jodie. Even after the couple broke up, Jodie still lived in fear of him. Annabelle listened carefully but she also wanted to make sure she wasn't raising the family's expectations too high. At this point, she hadn't even mentioned the story to her editor. So I was very much like, try to keep expectations low about how much I can do. Sometimes you get the question of like, will this help my case? And I normally will say I don't know, but sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But at least Annabelle had introduced herself. The family seemed to trust her and wanted her to look into Jodie's case further. Plus, they could now direct Jodie's lawyers to tell Annabelle more. That was vital. It meant she could now get the court transcripts from Jodie's original trial. And she spent hours poring over them. There was a lawyer who, through Hannah, was looking at taking on this case. And he had just got a big box of documents from the previous lawyer who'd represented her in the original case. But because I had the AOK from the family and we got permission from Jodie via the family, they were happy for me to come and have a look at this box of documents. And so they happened to have all the original transcripts in there. So they're all printed out. Annabelle dug in. She read page after page, working through each box. But by the end, she was confused. So there was references to the domestic violence in the transcripts. But what I've been told is that this was severe domestic violence that had gone on for 20 years. It had been this horrific relationship. And what I found interesting is that 
You did get a sense of that. It did get brought up, but it wasn't a major part of the case. The state prosecuting Jody has spent four days laying out their arguments about why she was guilty and had called 17 witnesses. On the other hand, Jody's defence case went on for just a day and a half and only called two witnesses. One of them was Jody. So it was Jody and then one of her family members. And I sort of was left with questions. I felt like it was sort of one part of the puzzle. The court transcripts seemed to raise more questions than answers. But it was enough to give the journalist confidence that there was something there. So Annabelle took the idea to her editor, explaining that she had come to the limit of what she could do from a distance. It was agreed. Annabelle needed to get to the scene of the crime. I started looking up addresses. I wanted to make sure I went to the place where it happened. I wanted to speak to other people who were there that night. I also wanted to try and find his family. There's a couple of different property searches you can do to try and find people's addresses. So I'd started doing those. Soon she was boarding a plane from Perth to Broome, over a thousand miles away. I did feel quite nervous, particularly given they were flying me over in a photographer and we were staying there for about a week. I, I was sort of very conscious of the fact this is something that the newspapers put resources into. So I, I felt, I guess, a bit of pressure that I was, you know, going to be able to pull the story off. She and the photographer touched down and then set off to talk to Jodie's family. Some family members wanted to speak more with me than others. But they were, they were very, like, warm, welcoming people. They did seem a bit nervous, but I think they felt that Jodie had been served in misjustice and that they wanted to do anything that they could that would help. And, you know, quite a few of the family members had actually worked in areas that sort of relate to domestic violence. Like one of them, she worked for the Department of Child Protection for some years. And so she was talking to me about other domestic violence cases she'd come across. I remember she became quite emotional. It was that thing of it is difficult wanting to get the information you need, but also wanting to be respectful of people while they're talking about something that's very traumatic. Little by little, more of the story came out. Annabelle heard how when the police arrested Jodie after the murder, the mugshot they took of her showed her face was bruised and battered. The family told Annabelle this was just the latest in a long line of injuries Jodie had suffered at the hands of her former partner, Damien. In 1998, he slashed at her wrist with a knife, leaving a scar. Seven years later, she was struck in the chest with scissors. She ended up in the hospital, but wouldn't tell the doctors how she had received the wounds. The beatings had gone on and on. He hit her with a broomstick, chased her with a hammer, ran at her with an iron rod, they said. It had been years of abuse, 20 years. The family had witnessed much of it and seen Jodie nursing her injuries. The couple had split up years earlier, but still saw each other around the town. They lived in Kununara, a town in far northwest Australia, whose name comes from the Aboriginal language of the region, meaning meeting of big waters. Then, one day, Jodie snapped. They were at a gathering with friends, and Jodie had been drinking. Damien showed up, and they fought about money. Drunk and upset, she had stabbed Damien in the heart with a 10-centimetre knife. 
an ambulance driver told the police that when he had arrived, Jody was screaming, You don't know what he's done to me. He's given me scars. I've got the scars to show. When the case came to court, a 12-person jury took just two hours and 39 minutes to find Jody guilty of murder. They rejected her claim that she was acting in self-defence. And um, what was interesting about this case was it was relying a lot on the jury to have a complex understanding of domestic violence. It was assuming, you know, the 12 people who'd been picked were going to have a good understanding of the cultural context for a First Nations woman in Kununurra. The jury hadn't had any guidance about the coercive and controlling nature of domestic violence. Nor was it properly explained how First Nations women are particularly isolated, given long-standing and often justifiable mistrust of law enforcement. The jury was 11 white people and one Aboriginal person. The sentence took Jodie's family by surprise. Here's Jodie's cousin talking to the West Australian newspaper. When I heard that she was sentenced to murder, it was, I think, a shock, a big shock, because we weren't expecting a murder charge. I was expecting maybe manslaughter or something like that, but not murder. Just with Indigenous women in general up here in the East Kimberley, we haven't really got much say in the law system or anything like that. And I think that her being an Aboriginal woman and the situation it was in, it did play some part in her sentencing. Talking to Jodie's family had helped Annabelle better understand the context of what Jodie had been through and just what a disappointment the court proceedings had been. But Annabelle knew that that was just part of the picture. She also needed to talk to the family of Damien, the man who had been killed. It was really hard and I felt for them. The thing that sort of kept me going in terms of speaking to them as I felt it was fair to do. And I also too just wanted to let them know that I, I didn't want them to be caught blindsided by the story. I sort of said, if you want to talk to me, you can, but you don't have to talk to me. But I want you to know that this is the story. This is um, what her family have said. I wanted to see what you have to say. And they did end up wanting to speak with me and you know that was hard because they had lost someone and I think that was what was quite awful about this case is um, there were obviously no winners. Annabelle heard how Damien had struggled with mental health issues and drug misuse. He had an adult son. His death shook his family and yet Annabelle couldn't shake a sense of confusion as to how Jodie was in prison with a minimum sentence of 12 years, how the circumstances of the repeated violence that she had suffered was barely mentioned in court. So she knew she needed to push on, find more paperwork, talk to more people. And there was one person in particular who would be crucial. Annabelle wanted to speak to Jodie, but that was easier said than done. and you're going to visit a prisoner who's not a friend of yours, you need to get permission from the Department of Justice. So I'd put in a request right at the beginning to interview Jodie and it just kept getting knocked back. I would keep re-putting it in and they would keep knocking it back again. They said that my application had been rejected and I wasn't allowed to 
visit her in prison for the purposes of an interview. It also meant I wouldn't have been allowed to speak with her over the phone either. So Annabelle resigned herself to the fact she wasn't going to get to talk to Jodie. But that wasn't going to stop her. She pushed on. She was putting the pieces of the puzzle together. But the more she learnt, the more shocked she was by what had and hadn't come out at the trial. She found herself coming back to the court transcripts, trying to make sense of how the case had played out. There was quite a lot of stuff that I realised weren't in the court transcripts, so it was things I thought could have potentially been brought up as evidence that weren't. For instance, her family said to me that he had actually burnt down a house, so that to me spoke of quite violent tendencies, and his family also confirmed that, but that there was no mention of that in the court transcript. So I guess that's what I was sort of focusing on, is information I'd been able to get that hadn't been brought up in court. And there were documents that Annabelle found that she thought surely should have been used at the trial. Police reports charting the violence Jodie had suffered. Or a report from an expert. A psychiatrist who'd done an evaluation on Jodie at her defence lawyer's request. The psychiatrist had interviewed Jodie for three hours and had noted that Jodie had symptoms of post-traumatic stress and would benefit from receiving counselling for, quote, battered woman syndrome a term used to describe patterns of trauma common in victims of domestic violence. She said it was her opinion that Jodie's actions, the night she stabbed her former partner, had been driven by fear of him, which came from the decades of abuse she had endured. Their 20-year relationship had been emotionally abusive and violent from day one, she said. Add to that that a court had heard from just one of Jodie's family members. Annabelle had spoken to several others who had witnessed the domestic abuse she'd suffered. There were still questions remaining, but Annabelle had what she needed to publish her first story. The West Australians started putting out a series covering the case. So we did it as a week-by-week series, and there was sort of more information I was getting as I went along. The reaction to the story was huge. People were surprised, I think, that... This woman had been attacked by her ex-partner the night she killed him, that she had been convicted of murder. So the first story was published, but Annabelle wanted to keep going. There was one issue that had been bugging her. She had heard that Jodie had gone to a domestic violence refuge. This was a few years after she and Damien had split up, but clearly she was still scared of him. In a way, that helped explain why Jodie might have lashed out that day, why the fight with Damien escalated to its deadly climax. Annabelle wanted to be able to report that, but the refuge workers had been refusing to speak to her. She'd gone to a refuge and it had never been mentioned anywhere in court. So it was sort of something that had been on my mind from the beginning. But now, finally, Jodie's lawyer had managed to pass on Jodie's approval and the refuge managers agreed to give her a report that they had drafted, proving that Jodie had come to them for help, fearing for herself and her three nieces who she was caring for. The report notes Jodie's reason for fleeing to the shelter, saying, quote, Escaping domestic violence. Ex-partner running amok. Been to police, but they won't help as he has a mental health problem. Ex-partner going off at the moment and scared might hurt her and the children. Annabelle published a new article headlined, Does this document change everything? And the articles kept coming. 
While she hadn't been allowed to go into prison to interview Jodie, she did manage to get a letter from her. In it, Jodie explains in her own words what she went through. She wrote about how she had suffered from years and years of physical and mental abuse from Damien. Quote, He was strong. He'd hit like a man. I'd finish. Leave him. Let him come back to me. Beg me. Sorry. All the time. I was scared all my life living with him. But I tried not to show it. She went on. I lived with violence all my life. He would swear at me and abuse me every day and night. He used to punch me when I'm asleep. That's why I wouldn't go to sleep unless he went to sleep first. And Jodie described her memory of what happened the day she struck the fatal blow. Quote, He walked away on the road, but he was coming back for me. I knew he was going to bash me again and I'd be dead. I got the knife to wound him. I didn't know he was going to die. The jury, she said, had shown no mercy. Quote, they didn't experience fear and violence that I lived through. The readers of the West Australian newspaper were wrapped. But it was one reader in particular who really sat up to attention. The Attorney General of Western Australia. His name is John Quigley. He's been reading the stories. He hadn't heard about the case. And then once I'd done the final part of my series he agreed to do an interview on the case because he was quite interested in it. And I, the family were quite excited when I told them that I was sort of trying to mitigate their expectations, I guess, because I, I didn't know what his response was going to be. And so he said to me in this interview that the stories had raised some valid points and that he wanted to request the transcripts himself and read the full transcripts. Quickly got hold of the court transcript and just like Annabelle had, he went through them with a fine-tooth comb. Sometime later, Annabelle was travelling, flying from one part of the country to the other, and she was flicking through on her phone, using the plane's Wi-Fi, when the most remarkable alert popped up. I was watching it from a plane from Canberra to Perth, and I sort of couldn't quite believe it. Quigley was giving a speech in the Australian Parliament all about Jodie's case. Attorney General... I thank you, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, I had not heard the story of domestic violence victim and convicted murderer Jodie Gore until a recent series of articles by Annabella Hennessy published by the Western Australian newspaper. I sought information on the case and discovered that the Court of Appeal had done something which was to raise the possibility of the exercise of the Royal Prerogative of Mercy. After consideration by Cabinet, the Government recommended to the Governor in Executive Council the exercise of the Royal Prerogative of Mercy to remit the remainder of Miss Gore's sentence without pardoning her from the offence. Miss Gore has taken a life. She has served more than four years in prison. I extend my sincere condolences to the family of a victim who, as it happened to be, was also the perpetrator of vicious violence against Miss Gore. The government has decided that now is the time for mercy. What Quigley was saying was that he had intervened and that the Western Australian government was going to use a mercy law to free Jodie from jail. The mercy was being granted because of the evidence Annabelle had helped bring to light. There was a bit he said at the very end of it. As a wise judge said, let mercy begin where justice ends. And so after the state parliament announcement, we were like, oh, my God, we, we, you know, we couldn't believe it. And we wanted to sort of do the first interview with her. She'd been transferred to a broom jail. 
and she was going to get released from the broom jail. So I got off the plane from Canberra, landed in Perth, and then hopped on another flight to Broome, not knowing if we'd be able to meet with her or not. So it's a bit crazy. So I'm calling the family members and some of them don't realise that she's going to be released. And they were besides themselves. They were crying. They couldn't believe it. They were so happy. So they were trying to find out where she was, but they didn't know where, you know, she'd been released from jail. And so they were asking me if I knew where she was. And it later turned out the jail had given her a phone and she'd given a place to stay. Then I got a phone call from an unknown number and I answered the phone and it was actually her. Oh, hi, it's Jodie. Um, they've said for me to call you. And I was like, oh my God, it's Jodie. And I was like, where are you? I can't believe I'm speaking with you. And she gave us the address. In that interview, Jodie told Annabelle how happy she was to be out, but that she decided not to try and overturn her original conviction in the court. I think she didn't want the trauma of going through another court case. Jodie just wanted to get life back to normal, she told Annabelle. She was a foster carer for three children who were relatives' children. Mm-hmm. And she got reunited with them when she was released. So I think that was a big one of her big focuses was, you know, um, being with them. Jodie was delighted to be a free woman again. But there was more. In his speech in Parliament, Attorney General Quigley had not just spoken about Jodie's case. He had also talked more generally about changes that were needed to make sure the impact of domestic violence was recognised in the legal system. He promised legislative reform to make sure that juries in trials like Jodie's would be directed correctly and given access to experts to help them address misconceptions and stereotypes about domestic violence. Here is lawyer Hannah McGlade again, the woman who first tipped Annabelle off to the story, explaining what it felt like to see Jodie's case get so much attention. Once the story came out, we we were incredibly happy. It was not just a one-short news story. It turned into a four-week investigatory series. I've never seen the West Australian do anything like this in regards to Aboriginal women and justice or regards to Aboriginal women, full stop. So it was very powerful storytelling through the media. Since Annabelle's stories broke, there have been big changes. A family violence legislation reform bill was introduced in Western Australia, which created two new offences, non-fatal strangulation and persistent family violence. They have been welcomed by campaigners and legal experts, but there is still a long way to go to ensure that the justice system is a fair and safe space for Aboriginal and Indigenous peoples. If you or a loved one is experiencing domestic violence, support is available globally through a number of hotlines and organisations. We've linked to several resources on our website and in the show notes for this episode. That's all for this episode of The Tip-Off. Thanks to Annabelle Hennessy for taking me through that story. There's links to her articles in the show notes. Please do review, subscribe and pass on word to your friends. And visit our new website, thetipoffpodcast.com to explore show notes, past seasons, transcripts and more. This show is a co-production of Studio To Be. Our co-executive producers are Joaquin Alvarado and Ken Akeda. Maeve McLennigan, that's me, created this podcast. Olivia Alma produces the show. Chloe Behrens handles audio editing. 
Claudia Meza does our audio mixing, sound design and original music. Thanks to her for editorial consultation too. Thanks also to Sue Bin Kim and Roshana Miller for transcription support. Dice Muse composed our theme music. As always, stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.